One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Amitava Kumar, writer, journalist, and English professor at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Kumar was born in Era, India, in the state of Bihar. He has written numerous nonfiction books, including Lunch with a Bigot and A Matter of Rats. His new novel is called Immigrant Montana, whose narrator, Kailash, is navigating his new life in America via the women he loves, his academic life, and his relationship with an influential professor. The novel is a very close first-person meditation on Kailash's experiences and observations as an immigrant in America. We began with Kumar explaining how closely his fictitious novel intersects with nonfiction as it seems to hover in both genres. There's a friend of mine, uh, a British writer, Jeff Dyer, who has a wonderful line somewhere where he explains that he writes an inch from life. And he says, but all the art is in that inch. So that has been a great inspiring um, idea for me how to write very close to life, but make certain that all the art is in precisely that little difference that one introduces. Um, you know, you're right to say that uh, there is something going on, the blurring of the lines between fiction and nonfiction. But what I want to add to that is that it is not simply the blurring of the line between autobiography and fiction, it is uh, uh, between autobiography and nonfiction. It is actually uh, trying to experiment with all sorts of other things too. For example, how to blend reportage with fiction, how to blend semi or quasi uh, academic footnotes with autobiography or fiction, um, how to use these pictures or uh, little uh, things I have got in my notebooks 
and try to do things that folks like W.G. Zebold used to do when they used their photos, but in a way that was very unstable or produced uncertainty in the mind of the reader. So all of those ideas are going on, and that's what I wanted to do. Not produce, I just thought, you know, I, I think it's very late in the day to produce straightforward realist fiction. One should, this is my prejudice maybe, one should produce writing, whether it is fiction or non-fiction, that also tells us a little bit about what does it mean to read or to write in today's day and age. And I wanted to, in some ways, comment on that too. What is this distracted mode of writing or telling and at the same time, everything being bound in some artistic way through a system of echoes and resonance so that it all adds up to something more than the sum of its parts. And just for some of our listeners who haven't read it, just so I can give a little bit of an explanation, you know, you separate this story into parts and the narrator's name is Kailash, although he has several um, different nicknames. And mm-hmm. in each part, they're all named for women, although one is a man and a woman. It's so intimate with the narrator that you you just get the sense. It's not necessarily that I know anything about your life, but you just get this sense from the intimacy, the, the way he's talking, that it is very close to your life. But then at the same time, you had mentioned there's pictures in this, there's footnotes in it, and each chapter starts off with maybe something that you had mentioned, like a picture or a quote that you had hanging up while you were writing the book. Given all of this and, and what you just said, and, and I'm curious about that inch of art yes. and how yes. you know what to put in the, what to put in the inch. The most exciting part of um, writing, I think, is to take something that you know, that has happened to you maybe, but then take it elsewhere so that it enters the realm of the imagination in a way that surprises not just you know, the imagined reader, but yourself. And that has been the most exciting part. So many things in the novel did not actually happen to me, but my great effort over the last 20 years of writing life is to, in some ways, always give the impression, is, how shall I say, is to always produce that sense of the real, um, the rub of the real in the experience of reading or writing something, you know? Uh, and I love the word intimacy that you just used. Maybe I'll use that when you ask me what is your favorite word. But uh, uh, the idea of the intimacy, you know, if, if one can cultivate that, not just for the reader, but with oneself, and yet be imaginative, I think that's a wonderful achievement to strive for. Do you think that it's almost more necessary because your story is an immigrant story, or is that not a fair assessment? Is that intimate um, voice necessary, you mean? or uh, You know, yeah. you were saying earlier that this at this late stage in the game for storytelling, we need to maybe hover closer to this line or maybe create almost in a sense new a new genre but i'm also wondering if because it's an immigrant story if the urgency of that need ramps up the genre blending yeah i understand what you're saying and now um you know edward said used to say that the experience of exile the experience of displacement the experience of folks uh, being uh, uprooted must necessarily lead to um, 
a mode of telling that is fragmented, just disjointed. Uh, I understand that point. A part of me believes that, but I'm closer to the idea that if you're an immigrant, if you speak many languages, for example, then your language, the language in which you write, maybe should be a mixed language, all the languages flowing in there, or, 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 or betraying their traces or their histories there. Um, I'm closer to that idea. Um, in my case, frankly, I just thought that someone telling a personal story should not forget that the world intrudes, the world of real news intrudes on your daily life. You know, you're discovering headlines. You're talking to your wife, but there is another voice on, and that is the television. Or you're playing with your child, and uh, you learn of something that has happened in another town. Or you're going to bed, and you turn on your phone, and you see on your Facebook feed that there has been an earthquake in India, and 300 people have died. So how to do a writing, how to, how to produce a writing with the different times, the different locales of your habitation, all collide and coexist, or at least coexist, if not they collide together, you know? So in that way, that's how I'll, this mode of telling appealed to me, actually, for this account. I want to talk a little bit about your character, Kailash. Yes. I mean, he, we see him, it opens in his first relationship, so it sort of sets the stage for the reader about who he is, where he's with this woman, Jennifer, that he meets at a bookstore. She's a little bit older than him, and they have a, a, a sweet relationship, but it ends. It ends. Um, it also yes. ends in, in her getting pregnant. But through that, we start to learn about Kailash, about his, his limitations, not just emotionally, but also his limitations with language, the words that he isn't able to say to her in the moment yeah. where he needs to hear them. I don't know whether you've, uh, you know this novel, uh, Season of Migration to the North. It's by a Sudanese writer called Tayab Salih. And some folks regard it as an early classic in post-colonial writing. It's a sort of a reversal of the heart of darkness, where a black man comes to England and his journey is up the Thames, so to speak. But it is also about the discovery of England through women. And I, I thought that Tayab Salih's protagonist inhabited some, some zone of silence, that he could not express something. And I think I had it at the back of my mind when I thought I could put my character, at least in his opening, in the beginning of this journey, in a situation where he makes discoveries that are exciting to him, but he's also, I don't want to use the word stunted, but unformed and also inarticulate. As you said, he doesn't have the words to say to her. And uh, I wanted to make it uncomfortable for myself to describe, but also for the reader, so that we discover something that is, as you said, sweet, but also we think of it as, hmm, you know, there's a bruising there. There's a bruising there of emotions, of life. And I wanted that to be 
And then so that we can go on to, if we move on to another relationship, we ask ourselves, how is it different? Um, is there a discovery of words that makes this more meaningful? Or is there a discovery of emotions that makes it more meaningful? I'm not sure there is, but that's where I wanted. So, so the, you're quite right to say that there is. I wanted the opening to be just like it is perhaps when someone comes to a country also. I don't want to conflate the differences between na nations or places and people, but uh, I wanted... I wanted I wanted there to be some discomfort and do do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean I felt like Kailash was always it's not that he was a tourist, you know, going through mm. all these women and schooling and all that, but there's definitely a distance that I don't think he could ever overcome. Even even in you write a lot about a relationship he has with a teacher who was very important to him. And the teacher was even from a similar background and culture. But even mm -hmm. there, there was, it, it was like he never could quite connect with anything. It was my sense. Ah, uh, yeah. I uh, I certainly believe that is true um, of the opening relationship. I thought there was a greater distance. I thought with the teacher, the teacher, incidentally, if you if it's okay with you, Mitzi, maybe I can speak about the teacher, and then I'll be, I'll, I'll circle back to Please. the point you've just mentioned. Uh, the teacher talking about genres, you know, it is based on a real person. It is a person who his name was Iqbal Ahmed. He's not that well known, but he enjoys a certain popularity among progressive circles and third world radicals. He died not well known, but on the other hand, people like Edward Said, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn were his good friends and some of them dedicated their best work to him. Uh, and Kofi Annan, when Iqbal Ahmed died, delivered the first memorial lecture, etc., uh, who was then the UN Secretary General. Um, I never studied with him, but he was an inspiring figure to me because among other things, he, having been born in a village close to mine, he migrated, he walked across the border to Pakistan as a young man. John Berger wrote a story about that part of his life. And I, because I was inspired by Berger, thought I'd write about his later life, which meant his going to Tunisia, his getting involved in the Algerian struggle, but more importantly, his coming back to America uh, when the Vietnam War was being fought and joining with the Catholic brothers um, to protest the war and being indicted for conspiring to kidnap Kissinger. You know, it was a fictional life almost. And um, I wanted to write about that, but I did not think I had enough. Even though I interviewed, I went to his village, I interviewed his wife here in New York. I interviewed the woman he was in love with at the time of his death. I met her in New Delhi, etc., etc. I talked to his daughter, I talked to his students. I didn't have enough of enough. So I turned that no, into from nonfiction into fiction. Now, there's an idealistic aspect to this, my narrator's uh, view of his teacher, but I thought of it as love. I, in fact, thought of him, the teacher, as a sort of a moral center in the book, and I thought of it as someone who, you know, inspires love. A certain and and there are moments, particularly toward the end, when there is closeness in their discussion 
about relationships, about death, about prayer. And I also thought that in the, and here I'm coming back to the question I last left you with, I also thought that my narrator learns to relate in different or new ways to the new people in his life. And he asks questions of them that makes him make a discovery about life and also about himself. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Well, one of the things that Kailash says is that the immigrant feels at home in guilt. Yes. I think his fundamental guilt, the place where the guilt takes root, uh, really is something I myself share, which is that of leaving your country, leaving your family. I wrote a book called A Matter of Rats about my hometown in India. And uh, on the surface, it is about rats, the rats that are overrunning the town. But the real story, the emotional story, really is of myself as a rat, someone who has left, you know, the sinking ship. I abandoned my parents. So it is that guilt um, that I'm reflecting on. And I did not want ever You know, you are always told stories about immigrants, especially about immigrant success. You're told stories about model minorities. But what about guilt? You know, I wanted to focus on that. You know, that was the darker side of the experience that needed to be uh, underlined. I'm curious about the title. So it's called Immigrant Montana, and there that is a fictional town. But you have a section where your main character goes on a road trip to Montana. And one of the sort of central things that's going on, aside from his relationship that's sort of falling apart there, is uh, the wolves and the wolves killing sheep in the area. And that's something he's thinking about a lot, both physically and metaphorically. What happened once, in some ways it overlaps with the experience of the narrator, even though only slightly, is that I was going about, I was I was in my kitchen, I think, one day. I was making coffee. I was going to teach. And I heard the words immigrant Montana on my radio. I did. It was an NPR. Leon Hansen on NPR said, Wolf, wolves were killing sheep. And, there were, you know, a, a wolf named Wolf Number 3 had been killed. Now, I did not entirely hear everything, but I did. I thought th- there was a story there. I was very much drawn to the name Immigrant Montana. But then when I 
wrote to NPR and asked for the transcript. And 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 Mitzi, this is about 15, 20 years ago. I don't know. I wrote for, and asked for the transcript. I discovered that I had made a mistake. I had misheard. The name wasn't Immigrant Montana. It was Emigrant Montana. In any case, I had the transcript. And I wrote a little, maybe 800, 1,000 word piece. Just a piece of fiction. Imagined, you know. And then nothing happened. It, it lay there. And then I was thinking of this novel and I was writing about other things. This idea about Esan Ali, you know, the Iqbal Ahmed character had come up. I was going to write. But then, you know, so I'm not talking only 10 years ago now. An Indian editor called me uh, for a newspaper and he said, could you go and write about the Democratic Convention? And again, I was, you know, I went by myself, immediately said yes to this gentleman because the convention was being held in Denver, Colorado. And I had never forgotten immigrant Montana. And I thought, okay, I looked at the map and I saw that it wasn't that far off, several hours. And I thought I would go there. Now, I had never been to that part of the country before, although my narrator has, by the time he reaches there, he had been there with a, my narrator had been there with his girlfriend. All of that I invented, but I thought I would go there because the idea of a place called immigrant had taken root in my mind so long ago. And even though I discovered later that it was a mistake, it was actually immigrant Montana, it just seemed very interesting to me to have a place named like that. And if you have a place named like that, wouldn't it call out to the heart of someone who was an immigrant? Uh, it was like, and you know that movie called Paris, Texas? It was something like that. It was that rhythm, Paris, Texas, I thought, immigrant Montana. And um, just because of that name, and I realized that it doesn't have a large role in the novelist, but just this idea that an imagined place, a place with a certain name, a certain sound, can take root in you. And I wanted to tell that story. I was also interested in the fact that it was a site of violence, and that it was a site of desire. I had imagined it originally as desire, the wolf's desire for sheep. And I did not want to let go of that because that is part also, I guess, of the story's telling about how desire, how violence is often seated in desire. And by, and by violence, I don't mean blood as in the case of the wolf and the sheep, but violence in, the, in what I had earlier in our conversation called a bruising, where you, you, know, you end up hurting someone. All of that was part of it. On one hand, the appeal, just this romance of a name and its strange appeal, but on the other hand, also something else lurking somewhere to the side. Some other story there, which was the story of violence, not just of the... Sh wolf killing the sheep, but of the wolf being killed. Um, and therefore then I began to think of how the narrator's girlfriend with a different idea would tell him about what changes the wolves had brought to Yellowstone, how they had changed the ecology, how they had been a part almost of a sort of a natural flowering, river changing its course, beavers doing things, birds coming back. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe there's a story there about the immigrant changing the ecosystem.
Well, there could be a metaphor in that, too, as well as as his um, status in America. So Kailash is a writer. He comes over as an immigrant. He mentions, you know, all throughout the book is these ideas of loneliness, of being an immigrant, the guilt that there's no place to stand, that you're always kept apart, that you he felt most comfortable at airports. And it ends with his citizenship. But does that settle anything? No, no. Yeah, yeah. It's just another station. The journey, no, it's not an end or a settlement. It's just another stage. I don't think it can be anything else. In the same way as one's writing a book achieves something, but it is nothing or just a stop. You have to get up the next day and your life has taken a turn because something else has happened to you or to the world and you have to find new words, you know? I could have been happy, for example, with being able to say something about immigrants. But then Trump was elected. And there's been a different sort of conversation in the air. And new things are happening. Children are being separated from their parents. Immigrants are being made the scapegoats for all sorts of uh, wrong things that the elite are doing in this country. Certainly a very ravenous and duplicitous elite in this country. And um, new things need to be said and said in a more urgent way than perhaps my narrator was interested in saying in that book. So you have to get on with it and find new words, which is, I guess I'm saying, I'm trying hard, Mitzi, to, to start something new. Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? You know, my novel is dedicated to my friend Teju Cole, uh, whose book Open City was a marvelous achievement. It was, you know, one of the top 10 novels of, of the year in different publications, including Time and other places. Here's a little paragraph I want to read to you, and I'll tell you in a moment why. His narrator has gone to the American Folk Art Museum in New York, and I'll read to you a paragraph of what he sees. That floor, as well as the one just below it, was given over to a special exhibition of the paintings of John Brewster. Brewster, the son of a New England doctor of the same name, had modest facility, but the scale of the exhibition made it clear that he had been much in demand as an artist. The gallery was quiet and calm, and save for the guard who stood in a corner, I was the only person there. This heightened the feeling of quietness I got from almost all the portraits. The stillness of the people depicted was certainly part of it, as was the sober color palette of each panel. But there was something more, something harder to define, an air of hermeticism. Each of the portraits was a sealed away world, visible from without, but impossible to enter. This was truest of Brewster's many portraits of children, all of them self-possessed in their infantile bodies and often with whimsical elements in their outfits, but with the faces, without exception, serious, more serious even than those of the adults, a gravity all out of keeping with their tender ages. Each child stood in a doll-like pose and was brought to life by an incisive gaze. The effect was unsettling. The key 
as I found out, was that John Brewster was profoundly deaf. And the same was true of many of the children he portrayed. Some of them were pupils at the Connecticut Asylum for the Education and Instruction of Deaf and Dumb Persons, which had been founded in 1817 as the country's first school for the deaf. Brewster was enrolled for three years there as an adult student. And it, and it was while he was there that what later became known as the American Sign Language was developed. Tell me more why you chose this. I think any piece of writing should make you see. It should make you see the world or should make you see an emotion. It should make you see a scene in a new way. And what this passage introduces us is to a certain moment of seeing and seeing anew and learning anew. And I love the economy too, you know, this passage, this small passage that you introduced to a quietness. It encourages a certain almost contemplative quality in the reader. You're receptive to something. You become quiet. And then you see with the narrator's eyes the seriousness on the faces. And then, and this is the part of the economy, the novelist doles out bits of information that makes you see even better so that the stillness, the seriousness is then revealed to be a result of the deafness. And then the deafness becomes amplified. It's enlarged that idea because the artist you learn was deaf. And then little details come, dates, facts, and how he, the artist, was a part of a movement then, a movement to change the lives of the people he was describing you know, his own association with the American Sign Language, etc., etc. And I think that's a wonderful, tight, illuminating narration. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Yes. Um, you know, when I was writing Immigrant Montana, I mentioned to you, for example, that I went to a place called Immigrant Montana. Um, but even before that, I would say five years before that, there was a part I wrote, a small page, while I was on an Amtrak going to New York for my first job interview. And I'm going to read that section because it was about a monkey. It was a childhood memory. I changed it. And I'll tell you why a little later, perhaps. But here's the here's a passage I wrote. Lotan Mamaji was my mother's younger brother, a giant of a man, immense and bearded, pan tucked under one dark cheek like a secret that he didn't want to share. One winter morning, while everyone on the balcony sat listening to the radio, following the cricket commentary from Eden Gardens, a monkey stole into Mamaji's room. He climbed on the huge white bed and finding Mamaji's pistol brandished it, they say, at my cousin who was born two months after me and still in her crib. No one moved. Then, turning the pistol around, the primate mind prompting the opposable thumb to grasp the trigger. The monkey blew his brains out. He was a medium-sized young male. Bits of flesh, bone, hair, and gray matter had to be cleaned from the pictures of the long-dead family patriarchs hanging on the wall. There were so many lies repeated in the family, so many half-secrets. I don't know why I never asked anyone if the monkey's story was true. Tell me why you chose that. I chose this because uh, there was a memory of a family story about me taking a gun 
from under a pillar and waving it at my cousin who was in her crib. But there were also this other memory of the monkeys because that was a very strong impression, visual impression that had remained in my mind. And even that part of the story that they told about me, I never asked if it was true, what part was true, because I heard different versions of it. And then I made it. So in the train that day, so many years ago, I wrote about the monkey's suicide. And I wrote it about the monkey doing this because I, around that time, the uncle that I described in my first line there was basically committing suicide by drinking himself to death. And it was a great, uh, great violence done to his family. He had six daughters, etc. Um, and so that transformation is the reason why I chose. Because how, do you, how does a story over time, a story with vague outlines change? And how, as you work through it and try to get to the emotional heart of it, do you add or take away things? And in my case, what I quickly want to mention is that monkeys then became a preoccupation for me to think about this story. And I made later discoveries about how monkeys, thousands of them, were exported each year from India to America. And for me, and what happened to them? How they were sent in space, how they were used in defense experiments, why the Indian government then stopped it, and what it meant for the social order of monkeys, how they became, how the social fabric was torn asunder there, and how they became marauders who come to then to the city. This became a story almost about immigration for me. Well, who came here? Who stayed behind? What were the separate destinies of these people? So it was that what I wanted to convey and why I chose that really was how something you struggle with over the years is a struggle where in order to get to the heart of a matter, it undergoes such vast changes that it is almost unrecognizable from what you first put down. Where do you write? I live in a house that is right across from my the campus where I teach. And you would imagine it's a very urban setting. You know, there's a street that is in front. But at the back of my house, there is a creek. And the, my study overlooks that creek. And that is where I sit and write every morning after my children have left. It's lovely to have just that little view of the water, which is blue or green or gray most of the time. And then when winter comes, it's frozen ice. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I never want to go away from writing. I never get away from writing. It's a part of me all the time. I have children, so perforce, you know, there are other things to do. Um, and therefore I do that, but I never want to go away from writing. I never get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't show it to anyone. I finish the work and send it to my agent to see if there are any takers out there in the world. I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I hate the idea, Mitzi, if I might say, of people who burden their spouses with their manuscripts. It's an emotional burden that I never want to put on anyone. People who are paid to do that can do it. I mean, I'm, I don't say that self-righteously. I just, I just would feel very, um, you know, 
I, uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to burden anyone with this task. How have you dealt with rejection? By accepting it. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, the Lemony Snicket, who is the children's writer, had a thing, uh, had a little interview on PBS, and he said, a writer's relationship with rejection is like that of a fish to water. It's all that's there. I think you should feel it and feel utter despair and move on. And I think when I read that, I thought those were truer words had never been spoken before. And what is your favorite word? I can't choose really between clean and precise. So can you help me choose? Which one would you think I should opt for? I think you should just call it a tie. All right, all right, all right, excellent. Because, you know, I love it when someone, someone's writing su su suggests to me, not, simple, not simplicity, but clean. Even in its complexity, you see that there's something that is clean. And perhaps it is achieved because he or she has tried to be precise. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Amitava Kumar, author of the novel Immigrant Montana. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.